This episode is sponsored by Lens Protocol. Lens lets you own your own social media presence, easily monetize your content, and carry your social graph with you wherever you go. That means you, the creator, can focus on creating without ever having to worry about losing access to your account or having to build a new following again. Lens also lets you engage more closely with your fans, directly monetize your work, and if you're a dev, easily spin up a new app with Lens's full suite of developer tools. Lens Protocol is the social layer of Web3. Join the waitlist at waitlist.lens.xyz for the last social media handle you'll ever need. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rehash, a Web3 podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen. And today we have the privilege of hearing from Blake Finucan, Chief Strategy Officer at Emergent Entertainment and host of the Context podcast with Boys Club. Blake is one of the earliest researchers of NFTs, non-fungible tokens. While most people started learning about NFTs in 2021, Blake has been studying NFTs since 2016, years before the ERC-721 token standard for NFTs was even developed back in early 2018. As a result of her innovative research on NFTs, she received a Canadian research grant to study at University of British Columbia, where she wrote her master's thesis on how blockchain technology and cryptocurrency can be applied to the art world. It was one of the first ever academic theses to be published on crypto art, and we get to hear firsthand about it from the author herself in this episode. Historically, in the art world, there have been a few main issues artists have faced. Provenance, authorship, and royalties. Provenance refers to the history of ownership and custody of an artwork. For many artworks, especially older pieces, tracing their ownership history can be a difficult task due to incomplete records or even intentional concealment of previous owners. And disputes over provenance would sometimes arise when multiple parties claimed ownership of a particular piece of artwork, sometimes even leading to legal battles about its rightful ownership. Another persistent problem we've seen in the art world has been with authenticating the authorship of a piece of artwork. Artist signatures can be easily forged, and as a result, determining whether a work is genuinely created by a particular artist or merely a skilled imitation has been a challenge. And finally, with regard to royalties, visual artists historically have not had very established mechanisms for receiving ongoing payments when their artworks were resold or exhibited in public places. There have been a plethora of ways in which artists have been taken advantage of by patrons, dealers, and institutions. All of these problems can and have been solved by blockchain technology and cryptography. And Blake writes about this in her master's thesis from 2018, which she spent two years heavily researching and working on. I've linked her thesis in the show notes for anybody who wants to do a deeper dive into this topic. I will warn you that it is around 80 pages long, but she does a great job of summarizing the main points for us in this interview. We also spent some time talking about Web3 gaming and the role of NFTs in games. Blake is currently working on a game called Resurgence through her company Emergent Entertainment, and she has some refreshing takes about how games should or should not structure their token models if they want to be successful. Blake has a wealth of knowledge and is so in tune with the culture of the space. And I can't wait for you all to hear my interview with her. Blake was nominated by Dina Burke and voted onto the podcast by Evan McMullen, Natasha Hoskins, Louie, Steph Linsug, Aaron Soskin, Triumph, and Dina Burke. So without further ado, here's my interview with Blake. 
Hey, Blake, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing so good. I'm so excited to be here. I know Dina was the nominator, my dear friend, co-founder of Boys Club, uh, incredible all-around person. And the voters, like everyone, I'm just like floored to be here that people actually voted for me. I'm like, it's a dream. So thank you for having me. I'm so honored to have you on the podcast. And like I was saying to you before we hit record, I can't believe you weren't on my radar until Dina put you on my radar and rallied the boys club troops to come and vote for you. I know Natasha was part of that. Once I started digging into Evan as well, once I started digging Mm -hmm. into Mm -hmm. just like all the stuff that you've done, I was like, how is it possible that Blake has never been on my radar in the past? Like you were one of the pioneers of NFTs, which we'll get into all of this, but NFTs were like my favorite thing. And one of the things that brought me into the space And I thought I really dove deep into it, but clearly not deep enough because I didn't even find out about you and all the work that you've done. I will say that it's a testament to Boys Club because they take people and they support people even when they're quiet and shy. They're like, hey, you're the one. So that's a testament to them. Always so supportive, always like such believers in me. Dare I say more believers in me than I am sometimes in me. So they're like the most amazing group. I'm up here in Vancouver, so it's a quiet spot. Lots of crypto going on, but I I hide a lot of the time. So, you know, Boys Club bringing me out here. It's a dream. It's awesome. Well, you're in a more populated crypto community than I am. I'm in eastern Washington. So we're kind of we're close. We should actually do a meetup. Yeah, we should do a meetup sometime. But there's absolutely no crypto people where I live, which, you know, is... You is actually <laughs> kind of nice sometimes, I have to say. Yeah. But I do feel like I'm living like a double life sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I totally feel the same way. And it's nice, obviously, to have your crypto community like a boys club or whatever part of the corner of crypto that you're in to share and to grow and to circulate ideas through. But it's so nice to step outside because I find operating or living in a non-crypto world actually really supports the crypto side of of your life because you just have so much more perspective. You're able to engage with culture. You're able to not necessarily have the filter always be just crypto. So I like that a lot. And I think that's like where a lot of power can lie for you or for me or, you know, whoever is kind of operating in that way. So I love it. I could not agree more with that. The people that just Mm -hmm. live in their Williamsburg bubble. Sometimes when I talk to them, I'm like, you have no perception of reality. I think what you're talking about is super cool stuff, but like you're not with reality at all. (laughs) No, and it can show. And I mean, we do talk about echo chambers or bubbles or whatever it is. And crypto Twitter, I think in and of itself can be that. But to be stepping outside of that, I think is so powerful. And that can be some of the issues of what we see in crypto is that People don't necessarily have a lot of strong reference points outside of it. So the more that you can push yourself and move outside of that, I think the better that it is. Preach. All right. Let's actually dive into the conversation. I feel like we're just going to chit chat. And I wanted to talk to you about like Canada stuff, too, because I'm pseudo Canadian. My parents live in Toronto and they're both Canadian citizens. Oh, yeah. But love it. We'll have to chat offline about that because my goal in life is to become a Canadian. So I just need to get okay. some intel from you about how, how to make that happen. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, we can put our heads together, put a spreadsheet. We could like, you know, brainstorm. We can get it done. Guaranteed. Awesome. Awesome. Amazing. I can't wait. So I mentioned this in the intro, but for people who aren't familiar with you, you were one of the pioneers of NFTs actually before they were even called NFTs, before the ERC-721 standard came about, you were researching NFTs and you actually wrote your master's thesis between 2016 to 2018, I believe. That was the central question that you posed in that was, 
how has crypto art, since the term NFT wasn't really around yet, challenged the relationship to authorship, ownership, dematerialization, and distribution that were fundamental to conceptual art? And what relevance does this have for blockchain technology today? I did attempt to read your thesis. I found it online, but it was like very long. And so I kind of skimmed it. I read like the summary and then kind of skimmed it a little bit. But for people who didn't have a chance to read your thesis or maybe don't want to read, I think it was like 60 pages or something. Could you just give us an best of us? (laughs) No, I'm sure it's really great writing. And if I had more of an attention span to read long form things, I would absolutely read it. But could you just give us an overview of what your findings were to that core question you posed in your master's thesis back in 2018? Yeah, I mean, first of all, the fact that you even skimmed it, I mean, I'm honored. You know, not not many people are really diving into a master's thesis, I will say, particularly when I'm a podcast guest. So like, what an honor, genuinely, for that. So my undergrad and my master's degree were in art history. So I'm trained as an art historian. So I was really writing to an art historical audience as opposed to a crypto audience. Not that there really was that much of a crypto audience Mm -hmm. then, but certainly an art history audience saying, hey, I know that the historical liberal arts disciplines don't necessarily like new innovation and change and people pushing the limits. But there is this new art movement here. And there is an opportunity for us to really be on the forefront of understanding, contextualizing it and making sure that we throw our hat in the ring, so to speak, making sure that we have historical precedence to it. So the kind of point was this also really solves questions that artists have been asking for basically like a 100 years, meaning that I was trying to prove how important it was in terms of historical provenance and authorship. So the idea that you could, through this technology, actually know who's bought and sold your work at what time, where it is, as well as actually then code royalties into the buying and selling process. So artists then take part in the upside of their work. And I was so excited about this because this was never possible before. This was such a new innovation that was only possible because of blockchain. And when I saw that that was like, really what was new here. I was like, this is so, so, so important. So I was really trying to prove its importance and prove that it's genuinely art by drawing art historical comparisons through the century. That's incredible. And I'm not an art historian myself, but isn't provenance a huge issue because there's so much fraud involved with art, especially like really expensive art. And Mm -hmm. it's hard to track that before blockchain came around. I mean, it's still like it's a nightmare for people and provenance, not only from an auction house or buying and selling perspective in terms of can we really prove that this Basquiat or this Da Vinci is real and we're going to pay half a billion dollars for it, which, you know, just happened last year. And it's really, really hard to prove. But also for artists themselves who are living and working, it's really hard to track where your art is displayed, if people have destroyed it, or if they're selling it for huge amounts of money that you're, again, not getting the upside for. So particularly in the gallery artist relationship, Galleries oftentimes, now this is not a blanket statement, but it's a really exploitative relationship. Oftentimes, galleries don't have contracts with artists. Oftentimes, sales are done behind closed doors. The galleries can say, I sold a piece for $100 when I sold it for a million. I mean, mm-hmm. probably not that big of a difference, but it really acts as a protective mechanism in that way. And of course, there's still continuous problems that arise with new solutions come new nuances that need to be addressed. But it was just so exciting at the time to see that this central question within art, 
who made it, how much has it sold for, and where is it now, could all be automated. And I was like, this is revolutionary. So that's where I really started. And that's really where I ended with the work. So a lot has changed in the last five years since you published your thesis. A big thing that has come about is AI and everything that AI enables and how it's affected art. And we had Sarah Mayojas, who is one of my favorite conceptual artists, who is also in the crypto space. She was on the podcast last season, season four, episode six. And I had asked her about her thoughts on how AI has kind of changed the art space. And she was talking about it from the perspective, too, of how it's changed the relationship of crypto art to authorship and provenance and things like that. I'm curious to hear your views from like a different perspective. Like we heard it from an artist and now we're hearing it from somebody who studied art academically and for many, many years. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how AI has changed the space and also anything else, too, that you want to hit on that's changed in the last five years that if you were to rewrite your master's thesis today, you would add on to that. Oh, great questions. First of all, I love Sarah. I wrote about her in my master's thesis. So it's funny how it's come full circle. I'm a Bitcoin owner myself. I love the project. I also run an NFT fund. We hold Bitcoins in the NFT fund. So I love her as a person. I love her team and I love her work. Where I come from, from the AI art perspective, is I always look historically. And oftentimes I find that a lot of the problems or a lot of the resistance that people have to new technology, there's huge historical precedent for it. And there's very similar issues and questions that have happened in the past. So when I look at AI art, I look to reference kind of like artistic movements or genres. And what comes to mind for me is the pictures generation. They were a loose affiliation of artists. They were kind of post-conceptual art, pre-pop art, so to speak. Not that any historical timeline is particularly clean, but if I were to place them. And what they were doing is they were playing with and asking questions around mass media, which was really this new level at the time around television, around newspapers, around advertising. It was a new kind of proliferation of what mainstream media images looked like. And that all happened because of technological advancements in photography and video. So for me, I look at these artists, they would take TV commercials, they would take print advertisements from magazines or older historical photos of artworks, and they would restage them. They would recontextualize these materials, right? And they were doing this to expose cultural tropes and stereotypes in popular imagery. And why I bring that up is because people were very upset about these artists. They're not using original materials. Who actually owns this work? Who gets credit for it? What types of image depositories are they working with? So I think questions around authorship, around originality have been here for a really long time. And I think the picture generation really represents that. So I feel quite at home, so to speak around these questions because they've been asked before. And I think every time a new technology is introduced, questions around authorship, questions around originality come forth. So I see that history always repeats itself and we're seeing it here. I think maybe there are new questions being introduced around just the amount of images and the wide net you can cast in terms of reference points. These artists were referencing very specific data sets and these data sets in AI can be massive and hard to really understand who you're actually referencing and whose ideas you're taking from or that you're inspired by. But I find it all really exciting. I think that it just represents a new artistic movement where the limits are being pushed and we'll see a lot of really dynamic, wonderful artwork as we already have come out of it. But I see it very much in line with historical art movements of the past. 
That's actually really similar to what Sarah said. And we had Mitchell Chan on the same episode and he might have chimed in on that point as well. But they were saying this question of authenticity of authorship of originality is nothing new like when cameras came about there was the question well photographers they're not creating anything they're just capturing a moment that already exists so do they have a claim to authorship for their works or do they have maybe less of a claim to authorship than a painter for example who creates something from scratch So like you said, I think these questions have existed for generations and the introduction of AI to art is really nothing new if we look back to history and see how far we've come. Totally. And I think humans, you know, it's like black or white. It's a very zero sum game. It either is a yes or no. But in this case, I think it's not that it opens up new artistic possibilities that weren't possible before. Of course, it creates new questions and things to address. But In general, I think it's really, really exciting that now artists have new tools to create. And I actually think what it also does is it opens up new forms of artistry around dealing with technology, around coding, around people that might not have skill sets around drawing or painting or photography that they can use different ways around language prompts, text to image prompts to have new ideas come to life in ways that haven't been expressed before. So I'm like, in that way, it opens up new skill sets for artistic creation. And that, I think, is always the most exciting thing. And that's why we have technology in the first place, you know? Yeah, I think ultimately it just depends what your goals are. Like, if you're of the mindset that there's one purpose for art and one way to do art, and that's the original way that art was made, then you're not (laughs) probably going to be accepting or interested in these new technologies. But if your goal when you view art is to make a cultural connection, to express yourself. Like you were saying, I'm now able to express myself with art more than I used to be because I have no artistic abilities from the traditional sense of drawing or painting or anything like that. But now maybe I can make a meme and express myself or generate something online that I really connect with. And just because I didn't do it from freehand drawing with a pencil or with a paintbrush, doesn't mean that I don't feel connected to that work of art that I just made. And that isn't a form of expression for myself. Totally. And, you know, I think, again, looking at art history, if we're bringing back to that, it's like most of the things, particularly when you look at conceptual artists, someone like Marcel Duchamp, who's kind of considered the king of conceptual art, he would take a bicycle wheel, put it on a stool and call it art. He would take a urinal write a word on it and call it art. Now, what this shows, and these are now canonical pieces of art that if you take one art history class, you will study these pieces of art. And then you look at someone like Warhol who used advertising images or who used Mm -hmm. the language of advertising. The thing that separates, say, an advertising image or a bicycle wheel from being just that versus an art object is framing. And like literally context and you telling me that it's art you painting the story and telling the story around it. So it's really about positioning. And I think people forget that too, but that's always been the case. And it pushes people's ideas. And I think it tugs at people's understandings of artistic creation. Again, authorship, originality, all of that. But a lot of how we understand art and creativity is simply just framing and calling it that. So going back to your thesis real quick, one of the things I saw you talked about a lot is rare pepes, which is like a cultural artifact at this point. Like Since then, there have been so many NFT projects, as anybody who lived through the 2021 NFT boom knows that there were just 
infinite numbers of 10K PFP projects. Could you walk us through how you've seen NFT projects develop over the last five years or actually even from 2016, you know, as you've gone through multiple bull market and bear market cycles, what are some of your observations of how NFTs have developed over time? My first thing that I really didn't understand is how quick everything would develop. If you would have told me when I published in 2018 that, you know, by 2021 or 2020, people would be selling millions of dollars worth of art by NFTs. It was unfathomable to me at the time. There was such an acceleration in that 2020 period that just the quickness in which the space developed, because when I was writing, like, nobody cared. Everyone thought I was unwell. Everyone was like, good luck to you. Like, this is grim, but happy that you're doing something you love. You know what I mean? So I think that that was or that is still astonishing to me how quickly the industry evolved off of committed creators that were there from the beginning. What I see now, I guess, is just how much bigger it's gotten, meaning that I don't think NFTs are a category anymore. That's almost saying the internet is a category. There are subcategories within that, whether that's artwork, whether that's 10K collections, whether that's fashion, whether that's gaming, and you know, then all of the subcategories within that. So I see just more specialization, more development in terms of the specificity of the products and the, I guess, NFTs coming out that it's hard to refer to something as like an NFT now because there's so much more specificity to it. And what I also see is I think then all the artwork specifically that was being created, there was no understanding really or no hope of large economic gain from that at all because the market wasn't there. There was no buyers. So now what I see is just that people aren't necessarily just creating artwork for the purpose of experimentation, but there's more, I guess, professionalization around the NFT artists, around the crypto artists than there was before. And there's lots more ways to go about creating NFT art and finding your niche, which I think is fantastic. One thing that I think about sometimes is the role that culture has had in shaping the Web3 space in general, but especially the NFT space. And sometimes I wonder if it's like a chicken or the egg problem, like if culture has helped shape NFTs or if NFTs have helped shape culture. And it's probably a little bit of both. But so much has happened. Like the world went into like lockdown mode for a little bit, which brought everybody online. And I think maybe that had something to do with helping NFTs to develop and grow a lot faster than anybody could have guessed. But when you look back, what role do you think culture has played in the development of NFTs over time? And on the other side, too, how have these developments then helped shape culture within the Web3 space? Yeah, I mean, I think it's so hard to separate the two because all of this was developing during COVID when the way that we understood or interacted with the world profoundly changed, like the unthinkable happened for most of us. So I think that what we've seen, particularly since COVID, is that dominant culture is all online, you know, with the rise of TikTok really happening during COVID and the way that we communicate, the way that everything travels is really online. Not that it wasn't before, but just because the digital space becomes so much more important there, you know, COVID is like the nothing was the same moment around all of that. And then with that, obviously, the way that you express yourself online, status symbols online become so much more important. So I think what we saw was kind of this because we couldn't go outside, the importance we placed on it lessened this idea of 
cultural status symbols digitally, 10K PFP collection really answered that so specifically and provided this, hey, well, you're stuck inside. Well, pay 100 grand for an eighth. You're Justin Bieber. You're Post Malone. You're Steph Curry. Let's do it. So I think that it's hard to separate the two, but I think that NFTs, particularly the PFPs, really fit into almost a need that we had because we had lessened the importance of traveling and moving in public IRL spaces. That makes a lot of sense because if you think about it, typically how people show their status, which is something that everybody cares about to some extent, is by the things that you do. So whatever the thing is that you're into, that's the thing that you showcase all the time. If you're into traveling, you're showcasing all of your travels all the time on social media. Whatever you're into, you're showcasing that. Fashion. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Like even walking outside onto the street, you're showing your status by what you're wearing. And that was just something that we were missing for pretty much all of 2020. And so then the only way people could show their status while being stuck at home all the time was through these PFP collections. Like, oh, you're a bored ape. That tells me something about you. Or like, oh, you're a pudgy penguin. Or like, oh, you're just yeah. a, you know, whatever. Insert whatever. We, uh, we shouldn't dare name the no, just. No, 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 but no. we can no. guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think, too, you know, it also came at the same time of like, you know, the stonks craze where GameStop and there was just like the idea of hyper financialization of almost like cultural means became able to be mobilized so immediately because we were all gathered in these online spaces. So I think we saw it across the board, not only in the crypto markets, but in the traditional markets as well. And what I think NFTs represented and still do is just ways to collective ownership. It's just a way to organize people immediately via public ownership, by public display. So again, I don't think that that had really happened before online. You can go to like car meetups or watch meetups or whatever, but to be so immediately clear across the digital landscape of who owns what, I think that's unprecedented. And that's where we kind of saw the culture come from or respond to. So looking ahead, keeping a variety of factors in mind, the fact that we are no longer in that COVID lockdown mode where we had nothing better to do, considering the fact that we're now in a bear market and considering just how far the space has developed, how fast it's moved, the things that have caught on with more of a mainstream audience. Looking ahead, where do you think we have the most room for experimentation of new NFT models or projects in the space? I think that's also a great question. I think that at some point, culture based on numbers going up is just not sustainable. So with all these very established communities where the numbers have traditionally gone up, And, you know, people have made life changing amounts of money or held life changing amounts of money and not sold. The idea of having your ownership mean something more than a financial asset is of utmost paramount. I'm really always interested in what the board apes are doing and what the company is doing because they are really the center point and centerpiece of the NFT movement. And I'd say almost the crypto movement in general. And its success around NFTs. So building gaming assets, putting together meetups, bringing in these very massive cultural, I I don't want to call them influencers. I want to call them like touchstones, whether that is a Justin Bieber or a Steph Curry to share in ownership of these assets. I think 
it has to be more than money. And for a company like Yuga Labs to see what they do to do that, I mean, they are creating their game. We'll see what happens there. And if that really represents that hyper value and that floods back to the NFTs, that has yet to be seen. But for these big PFP collections to kind of be figuring out how to build their IP up, whether that is in gaming or in other ways, I think there's lots of innovation. And what they're doing there is new because no one's really built a PFP collection and then translated it into a game. So it's all new, but I think it needs to be done. So I think that's really interesting. And I think what Luca Nets is doing at Pudgy Penguins is brilliant. I'm such a fan of him and his vision. So not necessarily introducing new NFTs into the ecosystem because that becomes dilutionary and that creates so many more problems in terms of floor price and, you know, number going down, but building IP in unique ways by creating products outside of the NFT ecosystem, which flooding back hopefully into the cornerstone NFTs, releasing toys, building his whole digital experience with Pudgies. So I'm really excited about seeing what happens with both of those projects. But I think building out IP and the iterations of that will really be where the power lies. And then figuring out ways to make the community say, building IRL friendships, building value around sharing information around social spaces online and how to kind of enrich that to make it more than just, again, the economic upside. That's what we really need to see. Have you ever wanted to buy an NFT with a group of friends, crowdfund a project or start a collective? and found yourself stitching together tools manually to help you make your dreams a reality? I certainly have, and that's why I'm excited to tell you about Lore, the Web3 co-ownership platform. Lore lets you seamlessly spin up a shared wallet, pool resources, and coordinate group activity, all in one unified experience. Connect to dApps and make any transaction multiplayer. What you can do together is endless. Go to lore.xyz rehash and start a collective today. You mentioned gaming and NFTs are actually one way that has drawn me into gaming. I didn't grow up gaming. I'm not really much of a gamer myself, but since discovering NFTs and the potential of NFTs in the gaming space and how it can transform games, that's gotten me kind of interested. I know you're currently working on Resurgence, which is a game through Emergent Entertainment. So you're like very well embedded into the Web3 gaming space. So I wanted to ask you a a little bit about what you've seen happening there. So I guess to start, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the role that NFTs have played in transforming the gaming industry over the last few years. I think it's so exciting. I think, again, it introduces new dynamics around ownership and the gamer actually taking stake and taking upside in, quote unquote, like we don't need to call it their labor, but their fun, their time in playing a game. That just hasn't been possible before. Of course, there's black market selling, there's selling of accounts, there's all of that stuff. But so directly, that is genuinely new again. Like that just introduces new dynamics into gaming that wouldn't have been possible before. Now, what again on the flip side, the questions that you need to ask is, okay, if it's an MMORPG, there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of transactions every second, every minute. What chain can support that? There's technological questions that need to be solved and and are being solved for. But I think that is just so exciting around what you can do around storytelling in gaming, what you can do around actually creating new player dynamics because you're having this shared ownership, which creates a social coordination mechanism 
that's never been possible before. It all comes back to the same things, which is gamers can now have ownership in ways that they've never had before. Like that's kind of as big as an opportunity it represents. I think it's quite a simple idea. I think that's sort of the same pitch for creators too. Like when you're talking about the creator economy, I think like one thing that people miss is people think, oh, Web3 gaming, that means everything has to be on chain. That means we have to use the full Web3 stack. And that's really not what it is. At the end of the day, what we're trying to do here is to take the best tools that we have from Web3 and blockchain and apply them to the various parts of our lives, whether you're a creator or you're a gamer or whatever it is you do, in order to enhance your experience as a gamer or a creator or whatever. And so like you said, what gamers want is this ownership over their in-game assets, for example, is one thing. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what are other things that gamers really want and which aspects or which tools from our Web3 stack do you think are the most useful to take into gaming and then which are not so useful? Like maybe the game itself doesn't have to be on chain because of those technical issues that we have with scale, Mm -hmm. like what blockchain is going to be fast enough to support a live real-time game. We don't know. And so maybe that's not something that we need. Can you talk about your ideal Web3 game? Like, what are we taking from Web3 and what are we leaving? What I think is number one, I mean, I'm not going to speak for all gamers, but I can speak for myself and NFT holders of Resurgence, again, that I work on. But people want choice. People want the options. People don't want to be forced into anything. So if you want to sell an asset, if you want to engage with the crypto side, there should be seamless architecture to be able to do that. Now, on the other side, If you don't want your free time to be financialized, although alas, all our free time is financialized (laughs) if we're on digital platforms, we don't need to get into that. But if you don't want it to be in your face and you don't want to be playing for money or you don't want your assets that you're playing with to be, you know, quote unquote, worth money, then you can do that too. So I think what it does is it just empowers and creates more on-ramps and off-ramps for gamers to engage. So that's where I really think the power is. I think what we will really want to do, and again, I don't think this is special for gaming, but provide very seamless wallet architecture and integration. So you don't necessarily need to be worried about the on-ramps and off-ramps of selling your Ethereum for fiat or whatever it is. So I think that is something that we really want to be using and thoughtful about. And I think, again, around choice, there'll be different games for different people. I think we've seen a few very interesting fully on-chain games, and those are very artsy, crypto-type games. They're conceptual, they're thoughtful. I'm thinking of Dark Forest, for example. I was Um, just thinking that. (laughs) You know what I mean? Even what Loot did to spawn this whole Mm -hmm. ecosystem, but that's not going to be for everybody. I think most of the mainstream games, because, again, the infrastructure doesn't allow for anything else, most of it will be off-chain. And then there'll be on-chain elements or options to convert certain off-chain items to be able to sell. So I think that's where the real opportunity is, is giving players choice, not having everything be Web3, but having that being the underlying principle of it all. And then giving players choice. You can leave the ecosystem, make your items NFTs. I also think the idea of having an overlying currency around a game is super exciting. So having that ERC 20 token or, you know, whatever chain that you're on and having that be thoughtfully integrated, maybe not into the game, but very much part of the gaming ecosystem so that it represents some type of upside for the growth of the game, whether that's via staking mechanisms, whether that's the way that the the currency is integrated into the marketplace around buying and selling. I think that 
an underlying token that kind of sits on top of the game so as not to kind of really impact the game economy as it sits as a closed ecosystem. There's a lot of opportunity there. And I'm thinking about that, you know, with resurgence and how we're looking to really thoughtfully build our token in a way that's sustainable, that's rewarding, that's innovative. And I think that there's a lot of space to do all of that. I'm really curious what learnings you've gleaned in that space, because I'm kind of jumping ahead now. We usually end with an explain your tweet segment and I found a tweet, but it just works right now. And so I'm going to bring it up. And you said this back in August of 2022, so about a year ago. You said when in-game assets like NFTs or tokens are tradable on an open decentralized market, they inherently change why slash how people play the game. This has to be considered when designing both free-to-play and play-to-earn versions of a game. Open market game economies impact all players. Yeah. It's a pretty neutral statement. This will impact... Canadian. X will impact why. I know. You did not have any spicy tweets. I have to say I was slightly disappointed. Lots of thoughtful tweets. Oh, no. Just nothing like unhinged. Uh, Thoughtful, not unhinged. That's Blake. Thoughtful, not unhinged. Maybe I got to get more of uh, the latter. That's great feedback. Maybe in the next couple months. I'm not saying it's a good or a bad. I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing. Just selfishly for me, for purposes of this segment. The media. We want a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, You got to give the people what they want occasionally. True. 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 Yeah. 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 Not every day, but once in a while. Keep them them wanting more. Exactly. Um, Fair enough. But I know you have a question around that or do you just wanted me to go into more of my learnings around? Yeah, go into your tra- your yeah. your train of thought and your yeah. actual perspectives on how do these financial models impact the way people play games? I think when I wrote that a year ago, we hadn't seen a lot of crypto games actually make a game. It was just their NFT ecosystem being bought and sold. I mean, that was like a better time in NFTs than we have now, a better time in crypto than we have now in terms of prices, in terms of interest, in terms of all of that. So what I think I see is that no one has figured it out. I think that having an in-game, I mean, if you ask me two months from now, again, maybe it'll be different, but having a token fully integrated into a game in which is an ERC-20 or, you know, any type of crypto token, like an on-chain currency, I'll say, that is really tough because you can't control it then. And all these games are closed ecosystems. But then the whole point of Web3 is it's an open ecosystem. So inherently, they clash against each other. So I think there needs to be, and we've seen these conversations, but where I see is, okay, what can sit on top of the game? Like, that's really where I'm at now. Can there be many experiences? Can there be special experiences that are only unlocked with the token? But if you want people to play for fun, which again, will be the only thing that makes any of this sustainable, then the token can't really be involved in the real gameplay of it all. I think it can enhance gameplay. It can perhaps open up different type of gameplay, but it can't really be a central feature. And these are, again, new questions because no one's really built this type of game before. So these are really new economic systems in game that we're trying to develop. I want to wrap up with some questions from our Twitter friends. So the first one comes from Andy Boyan, who's actually one of my favorite people in the Web3 game space. That's like all he can ever talk about is games. And I love how he talks about games from more than just a gaming perspective, but he talks more about like the gamification of everything and how you can apply that to any space that you're in. So he asked on Twitter... What do deep industry gigabrains get wrong about NFTs? I saw this question, Andy. Fantastic. 
you know, thinking about this question yesterday and, and this morning, I think they get a lot of things right. I think it's hard to believe that a lot of people care about NFTs. I think people kind of get wrong at this point, the interest in them and how hard it is to get people to care. Also, I think the way in which NFTs are maybe referred, and again, I'm no expert, so you know, you can refer to the GigaBrains probably more than you can refer to me here, but I think also the categorization and that it's hard to refer to NFTs again, just as NFTs now, that there needs to be more specificity because I think the technology itself is so multifaceted and it's developing all the time in terms of what you can do with it, that the more specific we can talk about different parts or different ways the technology is used, that's very helpful because I think talking about NFTs generally maybe isn't realistic anymore because there's so many ways that they're being used. That's a really good answer. And it kind of ties back to what we were saying in the big... This episode is sponsored by Lens Protocol. Lens lets you own your own social media presence, easily monetize your content, and carry your social graph with you wherever you go. That means you, the creator, can focus on creating without ever having to worry about losing access to your account or having to build a new following again. Lens also lets you engage more closely with your fans, directly monetize your work, and if you're a dev, easily spin up a new app with Lens's full suite of developer tools. Lens Protocol is the social layer of Web3. Join the waitlist at waitlist.lens.xyz for the last social media handle you'll ever need. Beginning with people are just not in tune with reality a lot of times Gosh. in this space. You know? I don't count myself out of that category, P.S., at all. Totally, but, yeah. totally. I feel like I've just recently gained enough self-awareness to realize that I'm in that bucket as well. So baby steps. Yeah, I was going to say, we're learning together, both of us. Yes, you know? yes, absolutely. Yeah. Another question we had on Twitter is from Louie, and he says, what's Blake's relationship to work and wellness? <laughs> wow. Got some heavy hitters on Twitter. That's a heavy hitter. I mean, this this isn't fair to ask, but I'd love also you to answer that question. I'm just interested in your relationship to work and wellness. Yeah, I mean, you I go first. up and down, isn't it? Okay, I'll go first because I know you asked me first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you're a podcast host too, so I get it. You have to ask at least one question. I get it. And this is a great one to ask. I think it's up and down. I think this type of work and being in a constantly changing market that it's so up and down inherently, like if you're not proactively taking care of yourself, whatever that is defined for you, then it's not good. So I am always finding myself working against my desires to be online all the time and just kind of be sucked into everything. And I think the more experience I get, the more that I understand that there does need to be boundaries. And that actually helps with thought processes that actually helps with being present in meetings or with people or having ideas that actually, if you can take moments away, whatever that means for you and take break, again, whatever that means for you, that's actually helpful. That's not going to hurt you. You're not going to miss everything. So my relationship is ever developing. Sometimes it's better than other times. I think that's fair for everyone, but I'm still certainly learning and I have not mastered it around how to really like take care of my well-being in this type of space. Yeah. I can very much relate to that. I think for me, I mean, I think anybody that follows me online knows that one of my biggest hobbies outside of work is just spending time outside in nature, hiking, skiing, climbing, doing anything outside. And that's like my self-care, right? And it's like different for everybody else. Like for some people, it might be like reading a book or it might be like knitting or it might be like going to the spa. For me, it's just going out and like burning off all my energy in like a physical way. So that to me is really helpful. And then 
I will say that there's also this sort of like emotional turmoil that crypto can take on you. And I've experienced that myself where you get your tweet in the wrong eyes. And this is where you're actually a genius, like so strategic to not be unhinged on crypto Twitter. But honestly, like sometimes even if you post normal things, you can still get attacked. Especially as a woman. Sorry. Exactly. No, it is absolutely Uh, true. And it's happened to me before where I had to like turn my profile on private. When people say like, oh, you know, if people come at you on social, like whatever, they're just anonymous people, ignore it, don't take it to heart. And I feel like I'm pretty thick skin, like I'm pretty good at doing that for the most part. But this one time it really hit me. And Mm -hmm. that sort of thing is very prevalent on crypto Twitter still. And you just have to like brace yourself for that. But then to always be in this like brace yourself defensive mode is also not a healthy state of being to be in. So I'm not sure. Like, I think the answer to that is just to not spend every waking second online and to step away from the screen. And it is hard because when I think back to when I first joined the space and was trying to learn more and meet people and stuff, I did feel that pressure to be online all the time. And I was online a lot of the time. So it's hard now when newcomers to the space come to me and say, how did you like get to where you are today? And for me to say, oh, well, you know, make sure you're not spending every second online. It's important to take time away from the screen. Like it almost feels hypocritical for me to say that a little bit because I didn't do that. And I'm honestly not sure if doing that will help you reach those goals if your goal is to make a name for yourself in this space. So I don't know. I think it's hard, but I think it'll get better once crypto reaches more of the mainstream and we get more quote unquote normal people into the space who have lives outside of crypto. I encourage everyone to explore some sort of hobby outside of work. If you love your job, that's amazing. I also love my job, but it's also good to have other hobbies outside of your job as well, in my opinion. Totally. I love that answer. I think and like comparing yourself to the other people on crypto Twitter that are talking about their wins, it's never going to do anything for you. So the less that you can do that too, I think the better. I mean, I'm speaking as more of an aspirational than anything else on that. But I think that also helps a lot. For sure. I mean, I could talk about this for days and I don't have the answer. I know, I know. Well, we can take it offline. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I have one more question from Twitter. This one, I'm not sure where this is coming from, but I expect you'll understand it. Gabe, asked, tell us a story about early back alley Bitcoin sales in BC. Gabe, and he's one of my dear friends. Funny guy, he is. So I learned about Bitcoin in 2014 because I actually alas, got paid in Bitcoin for a summer job. I sold it all. I sold every last cent of it at that time. What job was it? Just out of curiosity. Like, you know, like in 2014, if you were like in university, you like yeah. did social media for startup. So it was that type of vibe. So I got paid in Bitcoin because actually Vancouver, I and mean, we had one of the first Bitcoin ATMs. Like we were very, very early in kind of the adoption side on Bitcoin, at least. So anywho, I would get paid in Bitcoin. And at that time, the wallet, there was nothing. Like I had no real idea what was going on. On and I would have to go to Gastown. There was like an underground, you have to go under the stairs. And then it was like beside a vape shop. And there was this coin exchange and people would just be like paying cash. People that, you know, you don't really look at, you just kind of like do your thing, go in. And literally people would just be like, I don't know how much I should even say it publicly, but it was a wild spot where I would have to go in and buy and sell Bitcoin. It was OTC. It was all in cash. It was quite a time. I would say it was a very iconic moment within crypto history for sure. 2014 was like lots was happening. Yeah. I'm surprised you even took the payment 
agreement and you weren't like sketched out by the company and we're like, I need real money. I was just excited to have some type of job, like studying art history. I'm like, who's going to give me anything? So like, I'll take what I can get. You know what I mean? So yeah, it was it was more that kind of thing. All right. Well, Blake, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Shout out again to Dina for nominating you and Boys Club Army for coming through and voting you on. We love you, Dina. Dina was also on the podcast. Little plug in the past. So go back and listen to her and Natasha's episode. They talk a lot more about Boys Club, which we've brought up so many times. So if you want to learn more about Boys Club, go listen to their episode. But thank you so much, Blake, for taking the time. I'm so glad we finally met and that all of our listeners got to hear you and your infinite wisdom. Let people know where they can find you if they want to get more of your thoughts and encourage you to be more unhinged on Twitter. And then also feel free to plug away with Resurgence or Emergent or Boys Club or anything else you'd like. Wow. Well, Diana, thank you so much for having me on. You're such a pro. So it's like a joy to be interviewed by you. And I feel like I should be interviewing you. I'm holding myself back. Only the last question I ask back. So just thanks for giving me the time and space to do this. It genuinely is so special to me. And yeah, in terms of where you can find me, you can find me on Twitter, Blake Finucane, <laughs> and that's where you'll see everything. And you know what? Maybe there'll be a couple more unhinged tweets here or there. There will be thoughtful tweets, but we're hoping for more unhinged. And in terms of the stuff that I'm working on, Boys Club is exceptional. They have kindly given me a podcast platform. My podcast is called Context, Views on Crypto and Culture. So the real vision there is to talk about crypto outside of the economic context and really build up cultural context, whether that's fashion, art, music. We've had amazing, amazing guests on. So that's what I'm working on with Boys Club. And they're so supportive and kind there. And Resurgence is a game that I work with. It's an MMORPG Web3 game. We have so much exciting stuff coming up with the game. It's been a joy to build and be a part of. So you can follow the game as well at Resurgence game. Amazing. We will include all of those links in the show notes to make it easy for people to find. Thank you again so much, Blake. Thanks listeners for tuning in as always. And we will be back again next Thursday with another episode of Rehash. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Rehash. Rehash is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Diana Chen, and sponsored by Lens, Livepeer, Quest, and Lore. Rehash is also supported by our community of NFT holders who curate our guest lineup each season. To get involved, head over to our website at rehashweb3.xyz and collect this episode as an NFT. Anyone who collects an episode becomes part of the Rehash community and will be able to nominate guests for future seasons. To learn more about how to become a guest on the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash podcast. And to learn more about sponsoring the podcast, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash sponsor. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at RehashWeb3 or on Lens at Rehash.Lens. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.